Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description. Ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back, everybody. Bibliophiles up and running once again. Adam Andrews with you as usual. And also as usual, I'm joined by the Center for Lit team, my favorite literary companions all in a row. My lovely wife, Missy. Say hi, hi Missy. Hi, How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Thanks. Yeah. And the other two literary geniuses that join us every time, uh, Ian Andrews. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you, my friend. And you have someone to introduce as well. Yes, my lovely wife, my intellectual better and my literary superior in every way, Emily. Hello. Hey, uh, we're back. That's good. And I know. Good to be back. Episode five of Bibliophiles. And boy, I'm excited about the topic we've got to discuss today. Hope we can get a really good discussion started, not just here at Center for Lit headquarters, but all over the country and all around the world. In our last episode, we raised the specter of Christian deconstruction which is a phrase that Missy coined recently to explain the, uh, I guess you'd say the problematic tendency of well-meaning parents to misread and misrepresent books to their students. And they do this in an effort to either teach moral lessons from the books or simply to, to do what's common among earnest, eager homeschoolers to read from a Christian perspective. Or to try to. Or exactly. Purportedly, to read purportedly from a Christian perspective. Right. And I don't want to recover any of the old ground that we've, that we've already covered on that issue, especially not if it's not necessary. And I'm sure that we're, we'll go back to that issue repeatedly in the future, you know, as it comes up. But, oh, we will. <laughs> yeah. Especially if we keep having Missy join us for the bibliophiles. I noticed you had me turned down today. <laughs> no, I didn't actually. Not, not really. Not on purpose. No. Um, but I do think the conversation that we had last time has a couple of implications for readers and for teachers that are worth investigating. And so I thought we'd kind of go off on a rabbit trail this time. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that our discussion of Christian deconstruction led us to ask a couple of questions. Number one, why should we read books? And number two, how do we do it well? How do we do it properly? But, But now it seems that a larger discussion looms. Since literature is an art form, don't those two questions apply to art in general, not just to literature? And what I'd like to do, and, and you guys can help me along here, and, and maybe we, we extend this conversation over several episodes even, but I'd like to apply those two questions. Why should we read and how do we do it properly to art in general, not just to literature? So why should we participate in art? Why should we go to the movies? Why should we visit an art museum? Why should we listen to music? And then the second question, how do we do that properly? It seems to me like that would be a great long, large scale, long-term conversation for us to have here. But there's even one thing that we have to do before that, it seems to me. And that is that we have to talk about what we mean when we say the word art. When we uh, really, the question, why should we participate in art and how should we do it sort of begs the question of a definition what kinds of things properly bear the name art? What is a definition of the term? And that's what I want to talk about today. Hopefully that'll be 
useful and helpful to our readers, to parents and teachers that are reading literature with their kids to have a broader context for the pro uh, the project of reading and participating in art. So let's start by just throwing that question out to you, um, you thoughtful, intelligent people. Any ideas about the definition of art? Give me a sentence that defines it from your perspective. Well, I definitely think you're right that we need to come up with a definition in this particular day and age, given the fact that um, people can, for example, put a crucifix in a jar of urine and call it art and gain tax dollars to support what they're doing there. So we probably should hammer out some sort of a working definition of art before we proceed. There it is. We're five minutes in and Andres Serrano (laughs) has already been referenced. Oh my goodness. What I was going to say is that actually bothers me when people um, look at that kind of uh, construction or, you know, when you go in an art museum and you see a bunch of paint slapped onto a, onto a canvas or um, what is it, composition art when you piece junk together and then they say, well, that's not art. And I don't know if I agree with that because I think art is just that which is made by human hands uh, to express uh, some kind of intention um, Mm. or even maybe not even expressing the intention. Maybe it's just, you know, because there's the art of craftsmanship. Like, there's the art of making uh, a nice piece of furniture. Like, it's just that which is created by human hands. And I think the question is more what is good art and what is bad art? And how do we tell the difference? Ah, okay. Except that you said something about craftsmanship. And as soon as you bring that into the equation, then we have to throw out Serrano's purported art because that's not exactly craftsmanship. Which is what I think, and Emily, you're probably saying that that would be, that would fall under the discussion of what is good art versus what is bad art, right? Right, because it's still a compilation of things that were chosen and thrown together. And that, I mean, there's room to say that that's bad art, but I I still think that it's something that has been created by human hands. So okay. are you saying that everything that's created by human hands must be considered art? I think that in a general sense, yeah. Okay, I mean, so if that I were the original, if I were to, for example, because we're not talking just about visual arts, we're talking about art in general, right? So if I were to um, spill out a bunch of gibberish onto a page and call it a poem, um, would you call it art? Because it was created well, by I me. Think there's a, well, there's a level of skill involved, right? That's where craftsmanship comes in. So, so Emily, what you're saying sounds to me like a concept that I would use the term artifice to describe. Um, art in the sense of being made, in the sense of being the work of a human uh, of human creativity. And I think Missy, you would be interested in adding to that definition some sort of purpose. Well, certainly Serrano had a purpose, right? But I'm talking about technical mastery of some sort. Um, I'm, I'm drawing my def- definition, I guess, from 17th and 18th century eras. Um, people like Pope and Dryden, who talked about art as being some sort of technical mastery, right? Um, something that, that involved symmetry and form, right? Some sort of, um, that drew on some sort of a, an academic tradition through the use of illusions, um, that, that, I think took as its subject something worthy and human 
right? Well, I think that's good art. But even then, there isn't there a range of of uh, ability? People can do that really well, or people could not do that very well. Yeah, well, for certainly sure. that's true. I mean, some people attempt those things and do it poorly. But the question is, can we call everything art? I like, for example, um, much of art takes the subject matter of love, right? Right. So does a Hallmark greeting card, but I can't call it art in the same way that I would call, um, for example, the works of John Donne to his wife, art. Okay. And I, I think, go ahead, Ian. Well, I think that's what, that's what Emily has been trying to say is that, um, even in describing what this thing is and trying to set it apart, set it apart from art, you use the word art to talk about it, right? Right. A Hallmark greeting card is actually uh, a, a work of art that someone sat down and drew with their hand and, in comparison to John Donne, it's a terrible work of art. What but about it's, it's still artistic? I, I wonder if maybe a better way to talk about it is to say that we're not trying to define art necessarily. We're trying to um, create some distinctions that allow us to tell good art from bad art. And maybe, and it sounds like what you're saying um, is that what should set good good art apart from bad art, in our estimation, should be its purpose. Because I think, what about? Um... A beautifully carved piece of furniture, like I was saying earlier, that that its purpose is maybe for sitting, but it wouldn't have to be ornate to do that. It, and it is an art, though, because it's it's pleasing, it's beautiful, but there isn't necessarily a meaning attached to it. You mean um, that there's no um, okay, there's no philosophical meaning attached to it, or that it doesn't draw on universals in terms of thematic ideas or that it doesn't evoke from the person sitting on it, some sort of emotional response. What do you mean? Well, I mean, it probably does evoke an emotional response, but I guess uh, when you say drawing on, on um, references or academic in some sense, there is a skilled art that isn't necessarily, I mean, I don't know. The big question is always: Is painting supposed to have meaning? Does it have to have meaning? And I don't know. I think that question is is uh, we're trying to talk about two different aspects of the idea of art, and one is um, what kind of activity qualifies as art. And it sounds like Emily might be arguing for a broader definition, a broader understanding of that than Missy is. I think there's another component of the definition of the conversation that's important, which is that that idea of purpose an artistic pursuit has a particular end in mind that i think if we can understand that will help us put the books we read and the movies we watch and the paintings we look at and the music we listen to into context and i'm i'm um, reminded of something missy that you read to me yesterday um by leo tolstoy writing in the 19th century in a work of critical theory or something like that where he's describing what he means by art and what the what um, characterizes all artistic pursuit, and it had to do with the the goal of of creating communion between people. Mm-hmm. It it had the goal yeah. of of somehow calling out to to readers, to listeners, to participants in their humanness in some significant way, so that to engage in the art, whether it's to look at the furniture or hear the music is to share 
something about humanity mm-hmm. with the artist and with all of the other people who also listen and who also view and who also read. Yeah, that um, the work that you're referencing is Tolstoy's What is Art? It was written in 1898, so it's a 19th century work. Barely. And um, he says things like, um, let's see, art is one of the means of intercourse between man and man. So essentially it's communication. Art is communication right. of words, of ideas, of feelings. And it's based upon man's capacity to receive another man's expression of feeling and to experience those feelings himself. And from his perspective, art essentially is a means of union, he says, among men, joining them together in the same feelings and indispensable for life and progress towards well-being, the well-being of individuals and of humanity as a whole. Now, I liked the, I like what you, what you shared with me yesterday because what that does, it seems to me that idea allows us to have the conversation that you guys are having now between what is good art and what is bad art in a... A shared right. context. Yes. And he, he goes on to talk about that very thing and says that men's perception, the art, the, the value of art, which is essentially what we're talking about, depends upon man's perceptions of the meaning of life, depends upon what things they hold to be the good and the evil of life. And what is good and what is evil is defined by what are termed religious ideas. So in other words, Tolstoy would say the same thing that in the context of, we understand art to be a pursuit whereby the artist and the the participants in art have a communion that that's the goal of the thing. Mm -hmm. There can be good art and bad art based on some other definition, based on some other ideas. Even the word communion um, implies some sort of connection to universal values. Right. right? Um, So art, according to Tolstoy is inextricably linked in some way to religion. Emily, what, what say you to that idea? Well, I was going to say, number one, I like where this is headed because I think that it's dangerous to turn up our nose at bad art and ignore it without first hearing what they have to say because they are trying to say something, right? Right. Um, and I think that ignoring that can be dangerous. <laughs> and secondly, I just saw my husband pull out Heidegger, so this is about to get interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, here comes Heidegger. <clears throat> Well, you got to give me a minute, though. Uh, the, and, and the implication of what you just said, Emily, is that, um, you know, Serrano, who we referred to already, who is d- despicable to our sensibilities, um, maybe by by Tolstoy's definition, is uh, producing bad art. But you could call it art in his definition, nonetheless, because of his attempt to communicate something about the human condition, something that he hopes that he may maybe see that he has in common with viewers. Is that, was that fair? Right. Well, right. And I, even though it may be bad art to our sensibilities, there's still something that maybe it's important for us to know is being said. I like the way you put that. It's important for us to know that it's being said for a, uh, for a Christian participant in culture from my perspective anyway, one of the things that we are called to do, one of the things that we're duty bound to do as Christians who live in God's world is to uh, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And I've always read that as, as uh, understood that to refer to my own thoughts, but a broader interpretation of that idea is that it's the, one of the Christians roles in culture to take the thoughts of uh, that are being produced in a culture captive to the obedience of Christ. And in order to do that, we have to know what's being said, as you just put it. 
Um, Ian, are you trying to have a conversation about letting it be? <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not ready to bring Heidegger into the conversation. That that bomb was dropped too soon. It is an interesting thought, though, because we're talking about communication between artist and viewer or reader, and that idea is that. I mean, it, it kind of adds to that communication element, right? Because part of what communication demands is that we act with humility and don't assume that we know what the person is trying to say. We have to let them be and give distance. Yeah. And one of the things that Heidegger also said is that there's there's danger. He pointed to a danger in Western civilization's uh, obsession with trying to dig out meaning and not just experiencing the art as well, because there's an element of art that needs to be experienced. And I think Tolstoy was was hinting at this too, and correct me, Missy, if I'm wrong, that the the experience of humanity itself is the goal, not not, not necessarily communion with a um, with a defined philosophical or religious purpose, but communion. Period. I'm a I'm a man. You're a man. This is what it means to be a man. Isn't that the case? Well, I think that right. I, yeah, I think that what he was basically trying to say is that art is the creative output of men trying to express to other men their ideas and emotions regarding the universal questions or the eternal things of reality. Okay. So, you know, there's creativity and imagination involved, ideas and emotions, and ultimately communication being the goal. Yeah, communication. And, you know, what what they're talking about is humanity, essentially. What it is to be human, just like we talk about in literature. Well, but when we study literature, we study literature to talk about the universal things and to enter into the conversation with the author about those things. Um, I think what he's saying is that's true whether you're reading or whether you're looking at a, a piece of a visual art or listening to a symphony. Right. Regardless of the form that the art takes, um, the artist is expressing in, in his own medium what it is to be human. Yeah. Ian, you wanted and to I jump in. I would. I did. I, I guess what I was trying to say is that, um, or what I wanted to suggest rather, is that, that uh, it's not enough to say that the goal of art is simply communication because we have to talk to uh, about what we're trying to communicate, what exactly we're trying to communicate about. And I, and I think it's actually safe to say, to specify a little bit, and talk about um, art being an attempt by man to communicate and articulate his own existence in the world, in a world that is animated by the presence of something other than himself. Okay, whether keep talking about that. I want to hear what you mean him, by that. Whether that's the person sitting across the table from him, or whether it's um, what we would call the presence of the divine, uh, and and you know, based on religious perspectives, obviously each artist is going to have a different answer to that question. But I still think that, in some ways, I'm I'm reminded of um, Melville and and uh, Captain Ahab here. What causes man to make art is this um, somewhat violent and very confusing um, impingement of the presence of something other in his life that forces him to to a place where he can't actually explain everything that's going on. It stretches his mind beyond what he sees in front of him. And I would go back. I mean. Just to clarify what I was saying about art before, I, I think that we're talking about the fine arts here. I think that there's a clarification to be made on that score. And in that sense, yeah, so, I so agree you, with you. So the, thing that you, the things that you're saying would separate um, uh, literature from journalism, for example. 
Right, because there is an art to journalism, but literature would be among the fine arts. We probably should have made that distinction right from the outset. No, it's good enough. We're 30 minutes in. It's a good I enough time to make it. it. That's why I wanted to say it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Ian, something you just said um, sparks another idea in my mind, which is that um, uh, the the distinction or maybe the, the inclusion in the same sentence of the words human and divine as part of the goal or purpose of an artist to, to communicate with people about what it is to be human and about the impingement of the divine, as you said a minute ago, and the, the discomfort and, uh, uh, you know, psychic dissonance that that brings being something of the, of the main purpose of art. Do you guys think that, that art should primarily, or art is primarily an effort to see the human or an effort to see the divine? I mean, the reason I think I bring it up is that, uh, Missy and I were just in Washington D.C. recently at the National Gallery of Art, and it's a wonderful, wonderful place to go. We spent hours and hours there, and 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 would have spent our whole time just in that gallery if there hadn't been other monuments to see. But in sep- several sections of the building, there there are paintings and sculptures from various periods of the world, and it's really interesting to notice that the farther back into Western history you go, the more religious the topics get. And from, you know, in medieval and Renaissance art, um, it, it pretty much ever, the only thing you could paint or sculpt was the Madonna and child or the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. And we saw them over and over and over again until <laughs> I was tired, just as tired as I could be of seeing pictures of the crucified Christ or the Madonna and child. And I thought, man, didn't anybody ever paint anything else? And, you know, the more, obviously, the more modern the paintings and sculptures become the broader the subject matter the more mundane i would say the more human the subject matter becomes is that an important distinction is the artist it does art actually legitimately talk about things human or should it be pointed at things divine or is there some sort of combination of the two and wouldn't you say that the goal of art um, is to um in the way that ian is saying demonstrate at least as far as Ian said, to demonstrate the encounter that man has essentially with the, the evidence of the divine in the world. Sort of a collision of humanity and and the supernatural. Yeah. So I guess what I was trying to say is that um, I'm not sure the distinction between art as primarily reflecting the human being or art primarily reflecting is a valid one. Okay. Because what art actually is doing is functioning as a lens for both the artist and the viewer for everything. A lens for all of the things that are contained in the life of man on earth, both physical and spiritual. And so what art is doing is seeking to to answer a particular question. And the question is why or where or what cause, right? How did all of these things come to be and why are they here? The existence, in the, and I, we're talking from a Christian perspective here as Christians, but I think this is true even outside of a Christian perspective. The existence of things in general begs the question of where they came from. And so as an artist, what you're seeking to do is strike out into that question and answer it in some way or another by condensing that thing that you're looking at or the idea that you're thinking about into an object, creating so, an object in order to give context. Oh, yeah, I so like that. So would you say, Ian, that in so much as art is reflecting reality, um, depicting what is, it is necessarily um, religious in nature, whether the religion that it's expressing is atheism or theism? I would like to add that I think it's important to note that 
we're talking about subject matter because all of this is coming from the human perspective, right? Even in so much as we talk about divine subject matter, we're talking about it as humans' experience. Yes, yes. So ask your question again, Mom. What were you saying? I was saying that would you say then, since it is reality that art is trying to depict, right? The individual artist's experience with what is, that all art is essentially um, religious in nature because it is depicting what is and answering those big questions you just mentioned, um, whether the answer is atheistic in its perspective or theistic in its perspective. All art is religious. That's a really interesting question. Um, I might go so far as to say that. I don't know if I would put it quite in those terms. Um, and we brought up, Emily brought up Heidegger a little while ago, and um, he has a wonderful essay. Um, remember what it's titled? Is it just On the Being of Art or something like that? It's called On the Origin of the Work of Art. And what he tries to do is tear this question down into into linguistic terms, right, and define everything, since language is the medium of meaning, tries to define everything in linguistic terms until he, he talks about, and it's really kind of frustrating and annoying and seems really obtuse, but he talks about the thingness of a thing um, and the otherness of the person and things like that. And what he's trying to say is that in some ways when we're, when we're looking after meaning, when we're searching after meaning, we have to realize our limits as creatures, um, that it isn't that things cannot mean, it is that they're going to mean far more and in far more varied ways than we're capable really of understanding. And so the way that he talks about art and thinks about art is that it is an attempt by a finite creature to to communicate something necessarily infinite because meaning is necessarily infinite. Mm. Um, and that, what Emily was saying earlier, I think deserves to be reset. Um what that does to, to your perspective about art is forces you into a kind of humility, right? Yeah, when you, I was when just you thinking encounter that. a work of art, every work of art becomes, um, becomes something akin to an icon, right? It's a, it is a symbolic representation of a meaning that is far greater than that thing you're looking at, right? So the way that, the, that, that we would think about, I guess, um, the way we would think about a crucifix is as a, a visual representation of a truth and a goodness that exists far beyond that physical crucifix. All works of art are supposed to be looked at in that way from Heidegger's perspective. That is really interesting. Well, I have a question. Go ahead, Emily. I just happened to notice that you said the crucifix has truth and goodness to it. Ian, does it have beauty to it? I don't know if we want to open that can of worms right now. It sounds like a podcast for another time, maybe. <laughs> oh, I think let's open it. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Uh, truth, goodness, and beauty, the the ancient um, transcend, transcendentals uh, are often spoken of as being the uh, the three ways that, uh, that you participate in art, that art um, must partake somehow in order to be properly considered art of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, how important is that combination of ideas to our discussion, Emily? Well, I just I, talk about can of worms, defining beauty. Um, what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean for a piece of art to be beautiful? And is all art beautiful? A truth and goodness, I mean, I don't have quite as much of a problem with those. Um, I, well, I should say not. <laughs> well, I mean, we've already talked a little bit in, in our series of podcasts about truth, little t, and truth, capital T. Right. And uh, goodness, um, 
uh, that which is, you know, true about the nature of God and, and what he's created. There's a good and there's a bad and there's evil. Mm-hmm. But beauty is kind of a tricky one, I feel like. You mean it's more subjective than objective? Is there no objective sense of the word beauty? Oh, I think there is, but working your way around that to find it might be difficult. One of the ways that we, in my view, too easily reject a a book, if I can bring the conversation back to literature, one of the ways that we too easily reject a book is because it offends our sensibilities and we would say that it's ugly um, or that it lacks beauty. And Emily, it sounds like you might be, you're suggesting that um, either a, a broader definition of beauty or uh, an idea that art, in order to be uh, doing its proper work, may not have to have all of those three ancient transcendentals working at the same time. Well, I just wonder, because my first thought was Flannery O'Connor. It's very ugly. There are very ugly things in the subject matter. Right. But the idea is that she comes to end up being beautiful, I would say. They're, they are beautiful Beautiful ideas. truths, yeah. The, sub, the subject matter, not so much. But then I think about Cormac McCarthy, and the subject matter is ugly, and I would say that the truth that he comes to is an ugly reality as well, that men are uh, fallen and violent and... Um, there's sorrow in this world, and I don't, I don't think that's a beautiful idea. But I would still highly recommend reading his work. Why? Because, because it's true. <laughs> well, because it it does what we've been talking about art doing all along. It yeah. makes a, it makes an interpretation of, of man's reality here on on the earth. It asks the question of why are we the way that we are? Why are we? Period and comes up with some answers, mm-hmm. um, and they, they are true answers. The presence of gravity in the human soul is a real thing, and the fact that he doesn't necessarily have, although I'm sure there's an argument to be made that my wife will tell me about later, but the fact that it's that redemption isn't sitting right on the surface, begging to be grasped easily by the reader, doesn't mean that he isn't telling the truth about them. Can you guys give us an example of a title from, from Cormac McCarthy that... Um, that might, you know, maybe show up in the show notes or that, that our parents and readers can uh, dip into to see what we're talking about? Well, I would, I wouldn't jump right into like the blood meridian, but maybe the road is a little gentler. So Cormac McCarthy's the road story about, I don't know if a story about him can be gentle in any sense of the word, (laughs) but that's not what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about gentility here. We're talking about the capacity of art to, um, say true things, no matter how ugly. Well, I guess I would like to go back to what I was saying about the perspective being human, because uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful are often taken as uh, a, a unity, right? A, th- a unity of three, kind of like the Trinity. And I guess I would posit that they only exist in perfect unison in the Trinity, in uh, God. Yeah. Those things all exist. And as you move outward from God and you get into human existence and fallenness, that they start to fragment and that we see we see elements of them. And, you know, they're together in some places as you move closer to to what is true and beautiful and what is divine. And then the farther you get away, 
the more fragmented they get. If that Interesting. Makes sense. Yeah, it yes. does. So you find them in part as, a, as opposed to in whole. That puts me in mind of an idea that's been kind of cooking in the back of my head since we started our conversation. And, and it represents kind of a change in my own mind from how I've sort of assumed that art should function. And you guys, all three of you are seem to me aiming at this idea that part of the artistic impulse and the artistic project is to grapple with the way things are rather than primarily the way things ought to be. Yeah, that, that you're expressing an idea that Goethe had um, that art necessarily partakes of an image's reality. Yeah, so that the that the uh, the job of the artist is slightly different than the job of the preacher, for example. In order, well, in some senses, I, there are artists who took up the question of should, right? Like, there's a, a disparity between what is and what ought to be. Yeah, but isn't the isn't the art that that we've been talking about the the concept doesn't it center in the uh, the way things are half of that disparity? Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. I'm just saying that there that is a subject matter that comes up in art. This little argument makes me think about Wordsworth's lyrical ballads, the preface, when he um, basically suggested that a poet was a seer or a priest to the world. Um, it's the same kind of idea. You know, what, what is the role of the artist? Is he merely presenting the world or is he trying to present a vision of the world that elevates in some way? that reconnects humanity to something above, something transcendent. Tolstoy would seem to be suggesting something like that. Yeah, I mean, Tolstoy, I think, and Wordsworth, too, um, I think would suggest that the the purpose of art is to um, help man transcend through viewing the physical in a new way, through new eyes, uh-huh. right? To present what is in such a way is to help man transcend his limitations for Tolstoy. That would be the isolation of a single man, right? right? Because art becomes a communal a experience. Yes. Right. Right. Um, for Wordsworth, maybe that is nature. He presents nature as the thing that is outside of man and that lifts man's sights up and above to something transcendent and helps him come out of his, the isolation of himself. But both of them would see art as a vehicle for that sort of an experience. Hmm. I'm really sort of taken by the, by Tolstoy's idea that you've that you've given me in the last few days of the the goal of art, or maybe not even the goal, but the the essence of art being that striving for uh, communion between human beings in the context of this world. And maybe I, I would import that idea that Ian brought to us from Heidegger that the world is, um, in a sense, beyond our ken, beyond our ability to uh, grasp all of its meaning, and in 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 a way that impossibility of understanding everything down to the bottom is the soup we all swim in as human beings. And it's part of, you might even say the beauty of human existence. And it it's the thing that makes art necessary. I like that idea. What do you think? I, I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm drawing on all of the different things I've read about art over the years, both in treatise form and just casually um, reading about authors and things that they've thought. George MacDonald had some ideas about art that um, that caused him to look at the world really sacramentally. And I think some of my favorite artists today um, participate in the same kind of activity that, that he talks about when he talks about 
the power of artistic expression, the power of fiction, for example, to enter into the mind through the the door of the heart because art does excite emotion in some way. And it seems like everything that I've read um, draws on that idea of of emotion where art is concerned, the kind of response that that art, first of all, is to the things that are, and second of all, um, creates in the viewer or the reader, right, about what is. Um, you get uh, Edgar Allan Poe, the American romantic, who says that um, art is just, it's just an opportunity to, um, excite the, the emotions to arouse, right? It's art for art's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, no need for any kind of thought attached to it, just merely elevated feeling. Even he, um, draws on that concept of art's ability to, to touch the emotions. Um, these other thinkers and writers and artists have have located that same peculiarity of art, but see it as functioning um, for some greater purpose, right? Either that um, the satisfaction of man's need for communion or um, his need to transcend himself or his circumstances or the confines of the physical world or, or something like that. They all, they all though, uh, notice its ability to get to man's heart. And McDonald in particular addresses that and says that is the the beauty and the goodness of, for example, fiction and literature, is that it can present these ideas um, without becoming a sermon. That is, it gets in through the heart in order to approach the mind or the ideas. And I think that that's really true. I, I see Marilyn Robinson doing that same kind of thing mm-hmm. through her literature today. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question I have for Ian and Emily is, do you think that the art that's less accessible and less quote unquote beautiful than Marilyn Robinson does the same thing? Well, I, I think that you're talking about good art. <laughs> All of a sudden you're talking and about value, right? The value of art. Maybe what Emily was trying to say is that you're making value judgments about art yourself when you talk about the ideal purpose of art and then and then turning around and making those value judgments a definition of art. What she's trying to say is we need to define art and call it what it is and then go to making value judgments about how oh. it ought to be used. Well, yes. I mean, that is primarily what I was trying to say, but I was agreeing that 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 is an ideal of art, and then right, I, and that's why Emily said I if say, you're talking about good art, then yes, she's she's really on, on board. Various artists have done that to better and lesser extents. Right. right. Yes, I think Marilyn Robinson is really talented at using art for what art ought to be used for, mm-hmm. but that there are still good reasons to read people who aren't as good at it as she is. Oh, certainly. Certainly. I, I'm not in any way rejecting, um, and I'm not saying that the only people whose work we should participate in are those who are um, the very best at their craft. Although, you know, the ones who are the very best at their craft deserve some recognition. <laughs> but no, I, right. I guess I guess what I'm trying to, to notice here as I think about the subject of art is what various artists and writers and thinkers have said about the subject and to notice um, similarities, uh, places that they come together in their definition. And that issue of um, art both being an emotional kind of an expression and drawing forth 
an emotional response seems to be um, standard across the board. I was sort of shooting for that as well. And I think we're all in agreement on that, that there's something, there's something that we could call, and maybe this is another question to keep the discussion going for a couple more minutes here. Is there something that we can call an artistic stance toward the world? Does the, the author of literature or the, or the painter or the sculptor or the composer or the furniture maker, as Emily said a little bit ago, um, is there a perspective shared among those people that can be called artistic? And if so, what is it? Because I think if we have an idea of that, we can go in as parents and teachers into our reading and into our teaching of literature in particular and uh, commune with those artists on a more on a deeper level. So that's uh, maybe that's I the, think, the go ahead, Ian. I think there is. And um, I think that what I would say about it is that the disposition of an artist towards the world is the belief that there is something true about it. Um, would you say? So that when, ah, I like that. When an artist looks around the world, what they're doing is attempting to understand what it means and what it says. I guess I would fine-tune that and say that it's also maybe more specifically uh, the ability of the artist to recognize the other um, and or deal their attempts to deal with the existence of the other. Right, but that's all. That's all that I meant. Because, right, I mean, true is kind of a buzzword, though, because then, like, do you read the nihilists? Um, yeah, the nihilists are still saying, from the, the nihilist still believes there is something that is true. No, I agree with you. I just was trying to pin that down. Would you say yeah, that... I don't know if I can say it any more specifically would you than, say, than I said it already, which was... Sorry, we're stepping on each other. I was going to ask, would you say that then, um, or maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but it sounds like what you're saying is that art needs to partake of universals in some way, universal human experience. Um, no, I'm no, that's not necessarily what I'm saying. What we were talking about is, is there an artistic stance toward the world on the part of the artist? We weren't talking about what art is anymore. We were talking about the perspective of an artist. And what I was trying to say is that, um, an artistic stance towards the world says that and lives as though the world means as though there is something true about it. Yeah, and I, I think I would. And I add, don't know if we can get a whole lot more specific than that. And the only reason I would say that we can't get a whole lot more specific than that is that once we get a lot more specific than that, we begin to cut out artists that aren't saying things we believe to be true about it. Right. Well, I guess I, right. my my response to that is: so are the works of Stephen Crane not art then? Because one of the main ideas there is that. Um, he doesn't believe that the world means. No, Ian, step in one step back from that. I think I understand him and I think I agree. Stephen Crane is an artist because what he does is he looks at the world and says, um, this needs to be explained. This needs to be, um, I'm searching for an understanding of what it all means. And, and it means nothing. It, maybe my, say, con- my conclusion is it means nothing. Means nothing. Right. And even to say that, even to say that the world means nothing is to undercut your own project, because in order to say that and have anyone across the table from you understand what you mean, then meaning must mean. <laughs> so that, that's why I took so many steps backwards. Right. Right. That's why I, I took so many steps backwards in my definition, because what an artist does is looks around and goes, well, there's something true about it. And you know, everything that follows from that point on is is neither here nor there based on whether you agree with him or not. Right, it's but an expression of his thoughts. But the artist attempts to make it mean. 
Yeah. Yes, it's an expression of his opinion about that reality. I want to share an experience I had recently that I think gets to the heart of this idea of what what is art. <laughs> and and I would I think I would agree with Ian that the artistic stance toward the world um, uh, has something to do with a a search for meaning. And I would actually tweak it in my own view and say the artistic stance for the world actually says this is a world of men searching for meaning, and and. To look at the world as if it is a an opportunity to participate in that search is, is of the essence of art. Uh, Missy and I were in, I don't know if I mentioned this on a podcast. Well, I didn't because we haven't had one since it happened. Um, we were in the Atlanta airport oh, yes, yes. the other day and uh, walked into the um, security line. TSA. The TSA security line, which it was going to take us more than half an hour to work our way through. And we walked in and on the left of this cram packed hallway, this narrow hallway filled with people, there was the TSA Barker, I'll call her. It's <laughs> a good name for her. <laughs> her job was to herd us like cattle through the TSA line where we were to basically strip down to our underwear and remove everything well, from our pockets and, <laughs> and uh, take everything good out story. of our bags, but do it quickly for goodness sakes, because there she's trying to push us through and she was... Her attitude was curt and her attitude was irritated and impatient. Her voice was raised and she was basically shouting at us to get along and move on, just like you would herd cattle. And on the right-hand side of the of this hallway, facing the TSA agent with this line of cattle in between, sat a woman playing the cello. And she was playing the Bach cello suites which were composed for solo cello, and they are among the most ethereally beautiful pieces of music ever written. And it was such a fabulous Just a contrast. contrast. They were almost face-to-face. They were almost shouting at each other mm. with us travelers in between. The one on the left shouting, you are dogs, you are cattle, you are to be um, to be moved controlled. like so much yeah. and controlled like so much luggage. And on the right, through her cello, this other woman was saying, you are human souls. You are e- as eternal as you are earthbound. There is a piece of the divine in your humanness. And her cello called it forth in the same way that the the harsh staccato shouts of the TSA agent tried to suppress it. And I got a kind of a glimpse in that moment of what art is really for. And maybe, Emily, this is just what good art is for. I don't know. I want to leave that question off the table for just a second. But what that what that art, that musical art coming into my right ear did for me was it reminded me of what it is to be human in this world. And I guess what I mean in this sense is it reminded me what it is to be human as opposed to what it is to be a cow. <laughs> because that's what the TSA agent was trying to <laughs> convince me of. But there was this element of communion that, that Missy uh, referenced a minute ago from Tolstoy, this element of communion between me and the cello player. I actually looked over to her and, and uh, mouthed the words, thank you. And she gave me this very significant look as she was playing the Bach cello suite and she mouthed the words, you're welcome. <laughs> As if she knew exactly what she was doing. There was communion between us and between me and the other people listening to the cello. We all had the ability in that moment to block out, if you will, the TSA barker. Well, in a way, what she was doing was standing against the TSA 
um, expression of humanity. Right. Right. And she was countering it. And she was countering it more loudly than I was when I got to the front of the line and protested saying, Lord Acton says... (laughs) Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. He always quotes the Constitution in a TSA line. Oh, well, you know, no one was listening to me, but everybody was listening to her because she wasn't necessarily immediately accessing ideas. She was getting in through the back door of the heart. Yes, exactly right. She was reaching our souls. Exactly. And I guess what I would say, add to our our budding definition of art is that it is uh, maybe for the purpose of doing this, but at least has the ability to speak to us in our humanness in some way. And I'm not saying it has to be it has to be uplifting and art that we would agree with in order to do that but that that is of the essence of art that it's trying to come in through some other avenue some distinctly particularly human avenue and create a communion between us yeah um so maybe this is the subject of another another podcast but does that mean that it's um is it dangerous Mm. oh i think definitely I think definitely. I think that might be the subject of another podcast, though. Because because what I'd like to leave our, our parents with and our listeners with and our readers with is an encouragement. And I think, Emily and Ian, you guys let me know if you agree with this idea. We should encourage our listeners to be open to broadening their definition of art, broadening their um, their pale, if you will, their willingness to read and participate because of the fact of what artists are trying to do. And maybe that's a project we can get behind. I want to hear Ian and Emily's take on that. And then you Missy, should we, or should we not encourage our listeners and parents and teachers in particular to broaden the scope of what they consider to be art. That's good. And what they will read themselves and what they'll consider alongside their students because of this understanding of what the artist's project is. And I would say, absolutely. I think that's, exactly what we ought to encourage them to do. And what I'm not trying to say is that you owe it to yourself or to your students to go out and find the more uncomfortable kinds of art that there are and make yourself master of those because those are part of the human experience. I am trying to say is that some of the things that are fundamentally true about us as human beings aren't beautiful to look at. And um, it doesn't help anyone or anyone's relationships, if I could be so specific, to back away from those things. Mm -hmm. And it just might be that because art creates a connection and creates a communion between human beings, that reading a a piece of art that talks about ugliness and, and talks about the more despicable parts of the human soul will empower you and enable you to see those parts of yourself and make those an open portion of your way of relating to your fellow man. And as we say a lot around Center for Lit, there's really no better place to struggle with those kind of questions than in the home. Right. It's so much better to walk through those those questions with your student while you can can help them see clearly than to send them off and let someone who believes that ugliness is all there is mold their mind. Excellent. That's a great reminder as we close. Uh, so really Missy, you had one more you, comment. What I hear you saying is that um, that it's only dangerous if you disconnect that emotional experience from your mind. But because human beings are whole creatures, although art accesses us or enters us through the emotional experience that we have, as long as we think about it and engage our brains, then it can only be a good experience 
Uh, I would say that, Beneficial? yes. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Even if we disagree with what the art and the artist is actually trying to say. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would add, I would add that the other, so the other set of circumstances that make art dangerous is if you only read and only consider and only view art that you agree with. Yes. Because then you've deprived yourself and you've deprived your students and you've deprived your children of the the skill of encountering ideas they don't agree with and leaving unscathed. Um, and so art can be even more dangerous in that context. Mm-hmm. I agree. Wow. Awesome. Great thoughts. I, I'm uh, uh, probably going to spend most of the rest of this day chewing on this. This is a uh, this has been really powerful. However, we are out of time one more once again. And thank you guys, all three of you for, for joining me today. This has been, um, uh, this has been a really thought provoking discussion. Hopefully we will continue it next time around as we get together again for the next bibliophiles podcast. But for now, we're going to let you go and thank you all for listening. I want to encourage you to come by the center for lit website. If you're interested in our perspective, on all things literary, all things homeschooling, all things human and artistic. In particular, I want to invite you to investigate the Pelican Society, which is our membership program for people that like the Center for Lit way of tackling things. We've got discounts on all of our products, including online academy tuition, um, free access to other live events like this one that are available to Pelican Society members only, as well as a host of other resources to help you in reading and teaching and thinking about literature and art. So we hope you'll come by www.centerforlit.com and check it out. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Until we meet again, happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. Happy reading.